Welcome to the Hills, and I know I'm talking to a lot of people at South Lake Campus and West Fort Worth Campus and watching online. So thank you for joining us. If you're in Tarrant County next week, I really want to encourage you to attend one of our Easter services. And I make you a promise, if you bring a friend next week, they will, on the way back to the car, say, thank you for asking me to come. I needed that message. Uh, at the North Hills campus, the 10 o'clock service will be the most packed, so we would ask you to even consider worshiping in the uh, youth center next Sunday at 10 o'clock so that we have room for all our guests. But be praying. It's going to be a powerful weekend. Okay, so I just have to say to all you Texas Tech fans, it was a great ride. I was rooting for you last Monday night. It was a great game and a great season. And to all the Lady Bear fans, congratulations, man. National championship. I'm excited for you. And I got a box this week, and I opened it up, and somebody obviously is wanting me to know that the Lubbock Christian University Lady Basketball Team are national champions, okay? So shout out to the Lady Chaps. This has been a good month for basketball in the state of Texas, and I think it's been a good month for our church as we have talked about race, and I have been overwhelmed at the response I've gotten. And by the way, some of you must be sharing these messages with people because I'm hearing from people literally around the world. I want to thank you for that and ask you to keep sharing. In fact, I want to tell you about a change we're making. So uh, for the last number of years, our sermons were on our app and our website for so many months, and then they went into a bookstore that people could purchase. And I created a ministry where we could take the monies from that and give to missionaries. And so in the last about 10 years, I've been able to give about $150,000 to missionaries. And it's been a beautiful thing. But I just came out of conviction, maybe I could do even more kingdom work if all of my old sermons were free. So starting now, everything on the website, on the podcast is all going to be free. So you tell your friends and neighbors about this series and send it and let's do some good in Jesus' name. So I said early in the series that I became aware as a young man in high school that my church was racist. The very first sermon I ever preached was on race, and the elders met and said, uh, he can't preach anymore. They had a policy at our church of a black family visited. They were not to be asked to come back. And I remember wondering, how would I get received if I attended an all-black church? So I did. I got a couple of buddies, and this was back before smartphones and apps, and the, we found an all-black church in the Fair Park part of Dallas, and we went to find it. We got lost, so we got there late on a Sunday night. The service started at 6. We didn't get there till 10 or 15 minutes late, so we came in quietly, and we just sat on the back row, a completely black church with four white teenagers on the back row. When the service was over, one of the men, probably a deacon, got up to give the announcements. He never looked at the audience. He just looked at his sheet. He said, let's remember in prayer, Sister so-and-so, who is in Parkland Hospital, and all the men remember the uh, men's business meeting next Saturday at 9.30. And then for the first time, he looked up, and he said, and if we have any visitors tonight, and I can see that we do, <laughs> I thought, he's talking about me. It made me feel special. And those people could not have been kinder or sweeter or more welcoming to us. But I remember having this thought that if by God's grace I ever get to lead a church, I don't want to lead a church where people can be recognized as guests merely by the color of their skin. I don't want to lead a church where I can know you're a guest because you're a different ethnicity. 
I want to help build a congregation that is intentional about pursuing God's multi-ethnic dream for the church. And I believe I'm at such a congregation. And it gives me a lot of hope that I'm going to see things in the future that only God can do. Because I believe the Spirit is at work in the church. And the reason that's important is because I believe true reconciliation demands a supernatural component. That the fallen nature and the sinful flesh is discipled to look for ways people are different. And so if God's going to do this new thing in the world, it's going to involve his supernatural enabling. And so we see that God has committed this work to the church, not to the government, not to education, although I'm grateful for every good thing they do. But he's committed this new work to the church because the church is the only institution on the earth that can tap in to the power of the Holy Spirit. So in Acts, we see the Holy Spirit at work leading the church into its manifest destiny as a multi-ethnic and universal expression of the kingdom of God. For example, the first time we have cultural tension in the church is in Acts 6. A Greek-speaking widows and Jewish or Hebrew-speaking widows are not getting treated the same. And so the answer was, let's appoint some spirit-filled men to navigate and resolve this tension. Now, in Acts, most of the time, people received the Holy Spirit when they were water baptized. Acts 2, Peter talks about that. But in Acts 8, they go up into Samaria and bring people to Christ. They don't get the Holy Spirit until after they're water baptized when people from Jerusalem come lay hands. Because the Spirit is telling those new Samaritan believers that you need to seek the fellowship of the Jewish believers in Jerusalem that you've been taught all your life to hate. Then you get to Acts 10. And Peter is preaching in Cornelius' house. And this time the Holy Spirit falls on the people before they are water baptized. Again, the Spirit is teaching the Jerusalem believers, you need to seek fellowship with the Gentile believers that all your life you were taught to hate. So you see the Holy Spirit doing this kind of stuff all through the book of Acts. He has always been at work and always will be at work in Jesus' church to promote unity among different ethnicities for the ultimate goal of lifting up Christ and being a more powerful witness. And I have seen the Holy Spirit at work in our church in the last few weeks, primarily by giving so many ears to hear. I have had more conversations with white brothers and sisters than I can count, including today, who said, thank you for this series. And God has opened up my eyes to see things in a new way. And to consider things from a perspective I've never considered before. And it hadn't always been easy, but it's been good for me. And the Spirit has given you ears to hear. I've had conversations with my African-American brothers and sisters who've thanked me for this series and who've even been gracious enough to say, Pastor, we don't want you to make our white brothers and sisters feel guilty. We want you to help them become more aware and empathetic so that we can be a better family. And the Spirit was at work in the way they heard the Word. My Hispanic brothers and sisters have been so gracious because most of what I said has dealt more with black-white tension. And yet their issues are very real. And I have not had a single conversation with a Hispanic brother and sister that hasn't been supportive. I've got to especially highlight my senior saints. Every conversation I've had with a member of our church over 70 has been overwhelmingly positive. 
I don't know a generation in our church that gets grace as well as they do. And one last group I have to thank. And that's our law enforcement officers. I carried a heavy burden last week speaking about the things I brought up. I would have dishonored my African-American brothers and sisters if I did not bring up some of the tension in that community with law enforcement. But I so wanted to honor my brothers and sisters who wear that badge nobly. And I tried to walk that fine line. And my brothers and sisters in law enforcement have been so supportive of what I've said. I have seen the Spirit at work. But listen, the Holy Spirit wants to do more than just give us ears to hear. He wants us to do more than just agree that racial unity is a good idea. What he wants to do is empower us for the messy work of actually pursuing racial unity as a multi-ethnic church. And so I prayed about whether or not I should share this next story. And I think I should. I was taking a walk a few months ago. Early in the morning, it's a time I like to spend with the Lord, just praying. And a man walked past me in a hoodie. I couldn't see his face. And then he stopped and said, Rick. And I turned around. He took his hood off. And it was a well-known pastor of a very big church here in Tarrant County. He wanted to know how things were at the hills, what I was excited about. So I told him about this series. And his first words were, be prepared for all the rich white people to leave your church. I said, what? He said, I preached about race in my church. All the rich white families left. Well, thank you for that word of encouragement. (laughs) And that really disturbed my spirit. So I walked on for about just a few hundred more yards. And I heard the Holy Spirit. And I'm sorry if it makes you nervous that I say things like I heard the Holy Spirit. So let me say it another way. I really, really heard the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit said three words. Don't be afraid. That's what I heard. And either the Spirit was saying, you be true and you preach God's word and anyone that leaves I'll replace. Or the Spirit was simply saying, and I think this might be it, your church is ready. Your church is not his church. Your church is ready to hear this word. So if we are going to pursue God's multi-ethnic dream going forward, if we're going to do more than just agree that it's a good idea, but actually pursue it, we're going to have to get into some messy challenges. And I'm going to share several with you today. Here's the first We're going to have to be good at listening to instead of just hearing about. Now, I said in the first lesson, we all have our prejudices, all of us. I have talked with African-Americans and African immigrants about some of the tension that has existed in those groups. I have talked with people from Mexico who've experienced bigotry from Latin Americans of other nations and Latin Americans of other nations who have felt They were condescended by people from Mexico. I said again, the fallen flesh always tries to find ways we're different. So we all have our prejudices. And the best way to keep them alive is to stereotype people, to caricature them. 
by listening to propaganda about them instead of actually talking to them. Because when we talk to people, then issues become faces and stories. So can I just say that we all need to do a lot less scrolling and a lot more listening. And we need to stop getting our big ideas about big issues what somebody posts on social media. James gave us great wisdom in chapter 1, verse 19. My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Now, that's good advice. I think, though, if James wrote today, he might write like this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to tweet, and slow to repost without thinking. We all need real relationships with people that can help us see issues from a different cultural perspective. And that means especially for us white Christians. We need to intend to get better at listening without getting defensive. At listening without delegitimizing someone else's story and pain. At listening without chastising someone for sharing raw emotion that makes us uncomfortable. A good friend of mine went to a conference recently of black and white Christian leaders. And he said the statement he'll remember longest was from a black man, an old man, an elder in a church who said to the white Christians, if you have black friends and they never talk to you about race, then you don't have black friends. You need to feel honored when someone trusts you enough to share hard things. So last summer, Jamie and I visited our church planters in New York City. Jordan and Jessica Rice have started a wonderful church in Harlem. And I'll never forget Jessica saying to us, sometimes as black Christians, what we need from our white brothers and sisters is not for you to feel guilty, but for you just to listen to us. And then the next day we talked with Brandon and Ty Watts, who've started a church in Brooklyn. And Jamie voiced what I think many white people feel. She just said out loud, you know what? I'm afraid to have the conversation because I'm afraid I'll say something offensive. I'm afraid I'll say something unintentionally hurtful. And so it's easy for me not to say anything than to start the conversation. And Brandon and Ty were so gracious to say, you know what? Relationship trumps misunderstanding. We're family. And families can sit at tables and have disagreements without getting up and walking away from the family. We love you guys, and you could never say anything that would cause us to want to walk away from you. And so if we're going to be a church where there is more racial unity, it's going to start with more of us saying, tell me more. Tell me more about what it's like to be you. Listen to instead of just hearing about. Here's the second big move we'll have to make. And this one's so big, I'm going to park here for a little bit. But we're going to have to get comfortable becoming uncomfortable. Here's what I mean. I'm going to show you three areas where we're going to have to get more comfortable. The first is in accepting interracial marriage. Now, 
I wasn't even planning to talk about this, but I've gotten enough feedback in the last few weeks that I realized I need to. So some years ago, I spoke at a church in West Texas. Uh, I was there several days. And one of those days, I did a message and I talked about race. It was the day that I was to leave. I went back to my hotel room to check out. Three big farmers got out of pickup trucks and asked if they could speak with me. I recognized them as men from the church. We walked in the room. They sat between me and the door. That was my first mistake. You see, that church was in a community where many Hispanics had moved primarily to work in the cotton fields. And that church had hired a Spanish-speaking minister, and many people of color were coming to that church now. And it bothered those men, specifically for one reason. They said, we've got a lot of brown boys in our church now sitting by our white daughters. And I have a big problem with that. They asked me if I had a daughter, and would I have a problem with her dating a person of color? And I said, I have prayed for the boy my daughter may marry someday since the first day I held her. I have prayed that he will be a godly man that loves Jesus and will lead her and my grandkids to heaven. And that's a whole lot more important to me than whether he's a white guy that doesn't love Jesus. And the father that was the leader looked me in the eye and said, we'll just have to disagree about that. And then he asked me what he should say to his daughter. And I said, well, if your daughter lives in your home, she should honor her parents and obey their rules. But I will tell you this. If you keep making rules for your kids that have nothing to do with the Bible, you're risking the possibility that when they leave home, they will walk away from faith. I said that. It just came right out of my mouth before I could think. And I know someone's going to throw up the objection, well, doesn't the Bible say and doesn't God say that we shouldn't be marrying people of other nations? In the Scriptures, God's passion is for religious purity, not racial purity. Not only is God not against marriage between different ethnicities, He is against those who are. I can show you that in the Bible. Numbers chapter 12, look at verse 1. Miriam and Aaron began to talk against Moses because of his Cushite wife, for he had married a Cushite. Now, a Cushite was an Ethiopian. Moses married a black woman, and it bothered his brother and sister. And it bothered God that they were bothered. Verse 9, the Lord's anger burned against them. And God did something very interesting. He struck Miriam with leprosy. Why did God choose that form of discipline? Miriam had to leave the camp. Because of her skin. God was going to show Miriam what it's like to be excluded and condemned on the basis of your external appearance. And only after she repented and Moses prayed was she healed and able to come back to the camp. You know, there are interracial marriages in the genealogy of Jesus, like Tamar and Ruth. Interracial marriages growing in this country... Today, 15% of all marriages are between ethnicities. That number will probably grow. Now, any marriage comes with challenges. You know that. But when you come from different ethnicities, you have special challenges. I've heard from a number of those families the last few weeks. Recently, I got an email from a lady in another city, a white woman who married a wonderful black Christian man, great father and husband. 
They moved to a new part of town. He went out soon for a bike ride. The police followed him home because they had gotten a call that there was a menacing, threatening black man riding his bike in their neighborhood. The police were not rude. They were embarrassed. But she had the awkward, painful responsibility of explaining to her children who watched the whole thing, her seven-year-old daughter and four-year-old son, why somebody in their neighborhood would think that their daddy was a bad person. So there are special challenges for people in interracial marriages. And the church needs to be the safest, most affirming, and supportive community these wonderful families could ever find. And so we need to get very, very comfortable seeing more interracial couples in our church. Second, we need to get comfortable with diverse worship styles. And frankly, this is perhaps the messiest issue multi-ethnic churches have to navigate. I found this cartoon in my files from over 20 years ago. The pastor says, please disregard the music director's admonition to clap your hands, stomp your feet, and boogie till you drop during the next hymn. Okay, here's the thing. I get why music is so important to us. Because all of us were shaped in our formative spiritual lives by a particular kind of music. And whatever shaped us the most becomes very, very precious to us, and we want to hold on to it. But surely we all understand that our infinite God cannot be contained by any time or culture or particular genre of worship. He's too big for that. The Scripture says, Psalm 47, clap your hands, all you nations or ethnic groups. Shout to God with cries of joy, Psalm 67, 4. May the nations be glad and sing for joy, for you rule the prophets with equity and guide the nations of the earth. And so God wants all the ethnic groups praising and worshiping Him in their culture and in their different beautiful forms of expression. And God is going to bring, according to the book of Revelation, all of these restored, redeemed cultures into the new Jerusalem. And so what I want you to hear is that if we're going to be a multi-ethnic church, we have to be a multicultural church. In other words, we're not really multi-ethnic if what we're really saying is all you black people and all you brown people come to our church and act white. Now, before you freak out, you don't have to worry about it coming some Sunday and the worship leader says, okay, now our first song is going to be bluegrass, then we're going to do some rap, and then we haven't done a Gregorian chant in a long time, okay? We're not going to do that. We're going to find a niche like a swimming pool, but inside that pool, there's room for all kinds of different strokes. I'll give you an illustration. I preached at South Lake Campus a few months back. And we sang the song I love, I'm No Longer a Slave to Fear. And Joe Varney, one of our African-American brothers, started that song. And I'm telling you, he started it from a place I'd never been to. He put some soul into that song. And it was powerful. And I was able to fully participate in a beautiful song I love, but in a way I'd never done before. So we're going to have to get comfortable accommodating our preferences for the sake of the whole body, which, by the way, are 
brothers and sisters of color have been doing for a long time when they come to this church. I have a relationship with a man who's a marvelous theologian and scholar and professor at a university. And he attends a church nearby full of college students. And the worship for those students is what you would expect. It's loud and it's drums and it's guitars. And he hates it. And so I said, then why do you go to that church if you hate the worship? He said, I don't particularly enjoy it. But I enjoy so much being around those kids and seeing how much they enjoy it. Now that's spiritual maturity. When you can receive a feeling and a blessing, enjoying what is blessing somebody else. I want you to remember, bringing a bunch of people who are all alike together in one room is not unity. Unity is when people come with different perspectives and different cultures and different backgrounds and different prefaces, and they sacrifice them for a kingdom agenda that is more important than their personal agenda. That's unity. And so, we're going to have to get comfortable with interracial relationships, with diverse worship, and with diversity in leadership. A multi-ethnic church isn't just evident by who comes, but by who leads. Remember the church in Antioch, the first where people were called Christians, had diversity in the leadership. Two were black men, two were Jews, one grew up in Herod's palace. I made the intention when I started preparing for this series, I wasn't just going to read what white men thought about race. I was blessed to hear what people of color, men and women, added to the conversation. We need that in the body. I'm thankful that we have more people of color on our ministry staff than we ever have had. That's by intention, and that number will grow. And I am prayerful that we will soon have more people of color in our eldership. There's a powerful principle of how churches have to live together in Ephesians chapter 5. And Paul says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. You see, the world had never seen anything like the first century church. Jewish people were gathering and sitting under the authority of Gentiles. Gentile people. We're meeting with and being sensitive to some of the dietary preferences of Jewish people. Imagine a rich man going to a church where somebody's slave is the pastor. You see, the church that pursues God's multi-ethnic dream is a community where believers can sit under the authority of people of other ethnicities, and they can do it with joy and honor and respect. I'll say again, the monoracial church is so much easier, but the multi-ethnic church is so much better because it's such a powerful picture of what the gospel can do. It's the church that lays down preference for the sake of taking up the cross. So we've got to get better at listening to instead of hearing about. Get better at being comfortable with things that would have made us uncomfortable in the past. And finally, we've got to learn to speak up when it's easier to shut up. 
Because Jesus sets the bar for his followers at higher than just don't make it worse. We must seek ways to make it better. And seeking almost always includes speaking. In Acts 11, Peter spoke up when he was called on the carpet about eating with Gentiles. And Barnabas spoke up and blessed the multi-ethnic church in Antioch that was doing a new thing. And in Galatians 2, Paul spoke up and confronted Peter's hypocrisy when he stopped eating with Jewish, I mean with Gentile believers. And God's going to give you a time and a place where if you really buy into his dream, you'll have to speak up. I remember the powerful words of Dr. Martin Luther King in the heart or the heat of the civil rights movement. He said, it's not the words of our enemies we remember. It is the silence of our friends. And by the way, speaking up is more than hitting like on social media. Speaking up involves personal engagement. And by the way, it usually involves more than just words. I speak up for racial unity when I listen to people of color with grace. I speak up when I'm generous, when I support my church that has been very intentional about planting uh, ethnic leaders, about taking missionaries to different parts of the world to reach other cultures. When I am generous with my tithes, I'm speaking up about my support for God's dream. I speak up by how and when I serve. So you heard about Renew Weekend, for example, Saturday the 4th. We partner with wonderful Christian agencies to bless our city. We've got over 20 ways that day you can get together with your community group or friends and you can go serve people. And most of those opportunities are going to put you in a context with people of a different ethnicity. So you can speak up by getting your hands dirty. That's what reconciliation requires. The cross made it clear. Real reconciliation always requires sacrifice. Someone's got to put it on the line. So let me finish my story from high school. We had a part-time youth minister at our little church. He was a preacher student somewhere. And we gave him $100 a week. He had a wife and a child and needed every single dollar to scrape by. The elders didn't come and tell me I couldn't preach anymore. They sent him to do it. So he did. He needed that job. And he wrestled for a solid month after with dissonance. Because he knew deep in his heart he had been part of something that was wrong. I didn't know this till later. But a month later he went back into that eldership. And he said, what you told Rick was wrong. And either you let him preach again. Or you fire me. I got to preach again. He put it on the line. And I stand here today because he spoke up. Now this series is almost over. The hard work is not over. The hard work is getting started. And I'm under no illusions that I preach a series on race and therefore the problem's gone. Racism will exist until Jesus returns. But the church must resist it until Jesus returns. We must talk about race because the gospel has something to say. 
No institution on earth can speak to this like we can in the power of the Holy Spirit. Remember, we're on mission. Jesus said in Matthew 28, I want you to go and make disciples of all the ethnic groups. I remind you again, the goal is not racial unity. Racial unity is absolutely critical to the goal of making disciples of Jesus in every people group on the earth. So, one last story. I came to this church in June. This next June will be 30 years ago. At that time, my children were very small. And uh, our custom when I preached in Abilene on Sunday nights after our service was to go take the kids to a little pizza place that had a game room. Because back then, you didn't have games on your phone. You didn't have phones. But you had those game rooms. Remember those great old video games like Pac-Man and Asteroids? And my kids loved to just go into that little room and do the levers. So it's on a Sunday night. We hadn't been here too long. We're at that restaurant. And (laughs) I remember... We let the kids go to the game room, and a lady came up to me and said, Now, you don't know me, but I go to your church. My name is Lena Nelson, and I thought you'd want to know that your children are going to different tables asking for quarters. (laughs) And my wife was so ashamed, and I was like, Yes, I'm raising entrepreneurs. (laughs) So obviously, we went there a lot, and we got to know the manager of the store very well, our friend Michael. Big black man, played football in college, became a close friend. So about a year later, we were having lunch there. Michael was about four and asked if he could go to the game room. We said yes. It was time to leave. I went to the game room. I couldn't find my son. I went into the men's bathroom. He was not there. I sent Jamie into the ladies' bathroom. He was not there. We looked under every table. We could not find our son. And now we're starting to panic. A lot of you parents have been there. We're on a restaurant on a very busy street called Roof Snow here in North Richland Hills. We run out to the side. We start screaming. We cannot find our son. And Michael, our friend, left the counter, left his restaurant, and helped us look. He went out behind the store and found my son playing in a dumpster. And I will never forget this big black man coming around the corner holding my little white boy. And in that moment, do you think I cared at all what color the man was who found my son? And the Holy Spirit brought that memory to me sometime later. And the Holy Spirit said, here's what the Father wants. The father wants his white kids and his black kids and his brown kids to get it together and go out and find his lost kids. That's what he wants. Because the gospel is the hope of the world. It is big enough to save anybody. It is strong enough to reconcile everybody. It is our hope, it is our mission, it is our future. And I am not afraid. Let's pray. So God, we ask for your heart. 
We ask for passion to become the church you want, not the church that is easiest for us to be comfortable in. Help us become the church that welcomes the flow of the Holy Spirit. Help us become the church that welcomes every person. Help us become the church that wants mission to trump tradition and trump preference. Help us to become the church Jesus died for and is coming back for. We ask this in His name. Amen.